Good evening. This is Janice. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground tonight. Tonight we present a rebroadcast of a January 2011 discussion with activists Kevin Gray and Neil Franklin. Please enjoy this very relevant and significant discussion. I'll be returning next Saturday at 10 p.m. And as always, I'll be listening for you. Please share with your friends and comrades that we are here each Saturday, 10 p.m. We'd love to welcome them to the Black Truth Sanctuary. Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, your host. Thank you for being with us tonight, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground. Talk that matters. We declare our right on this earth to be a man, to be a human being, to be respected as a human being, to be given the right of a human being. In this society, on this earth, in this day, which we intend to bring into existence by any means necessary. Our listeners who are not in our chat room 
know that we appreciate having you with us. It's been a it's been a tough week, Alpo, don't you wouldn't you say? Well, it's been just just above a tough week. It's 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 you know, you have to take a deep swallow. You have to, you know, get up because we've definitely been knocked to the ground when it comes to, you know, uh what we believe in the people we follow, you know, the the demise, if you will, of a Keith Oberman uh, just sends shockwaves through the progressive liberal community. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it certainly um, has been a week filled with um, uh, a surety that uh, things have, are not going to change, that this country has been besieged by uh, a legion of small-minded, narrow-thinking, in many cases, uh, people who oppose poor people, people who oppose middle-class working people, people who oppose everything but those principles, those actions that will, one, uh, keep the wealthy wealthy, make them even more wealthy, and to destroy any semblance of change that has come as a result of the resurgence of progressive-minded people participating in the political discourse. Um, I I think that that is uh, one of the ways in which we should be looking at it. I'm not exhaling. Well, Dennis, from what I can see, um, by all counts, um, we have, um, since our last broadcast, uh, we have, uh, the House has voted to repeal uh, health care measures that were progressive and independent and would ensure the American public uh, that we would have at least fulfill our capacity. Uh, to provide um, the kind of health care that this country has the capacity to provide to um, millions of people that did not have health care before the bill. I think that's major, Allison. Dennis? Dennis? I think we're having an audio problem. Yes, it's very choppy. I mean, you're in and out. I can hear bits and pieces only of what the words that you're saying. Really? And and I'm 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 thinking the same as you. I'm still looking for that audio check. Well, I did put it in the chat room that it was choppy, and it's still choppy. Still choppy. Still choppy. Okay. It, um, um, why don't you hold down the fort? And okay, I'll try um, it again. Uh, I see YJ has joined us in the chat room with Navazor and Crazy Old Man Network. I haven't seen Crazy Old Man Network for a while. And um, like I said, and like Janice said, uh, what we, we've, we've taken a hit. But we've fallen, and now we get back up, and we just keep going. No one man 
um, define the message, and no one man will stop the message. Um, Mr. Keith Overman, as valuable as his voice has been in this liberal progressive community, we will continue to push forward. We will persevere. We will not allow this to uh, dampen our spirits as we continue to move forward with a liberal progressive agenda. If we understand what is happening and if we see what they are doing, it's, it's so frustrating that we cannot get our elected officials, elected progressives, to really stand and make a better accounting of themselves in the fight. Well, you know, Alpha, it's real hard for people who are not sure upon the foundation that they stand to act in a decided and concerted and insistent way on the things for which they believe. I think that we have not only a failing progressive political machine, I think that we have people that have been elected on one brand of, of principles who elect to operate on another brand. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure. And once again, we welcome everyone. We're going to uh, let you know that we have uh, two guests tonight, Kevin Gray, uh, who is a counterpunch.org or, uh, or, political magazine contributor and a, a long-term civil rights activist and political analyst. And he's coming to us from Columbia, South Carolina. And also in our second page, we're going to be talking with another old friend, Neil Franklin. He is the National Executive Director of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition and a former in, uh, law enforcement officer. He was a major in the state, Maryland State Police. We're going to be talking them, to them about a great number of issues, and we thank you so much for being with us and coming right up after this. We'll be talking with Kevin Gray. Though this nation has proudly thought of itself as a ethnic melting pot, in things racial, we have always been, and we, I believe, continue to be, in too many ways, essentially a nation of cowards. Though race-related issues continue to occupy a significant portion of our political discussion, and though there remain many unresolved racial issues in this nation, we, average Americans, simply do not talk enough with each other about things racial. This is our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Thank you for being with us tonight. Tonight at our common ground, black political analyst and contributor to counterpunch.org, Kevin Gray. And we also welcome back Neil Franklin, the executive director of the Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. We'll be talking about marijuana reform. We'll be talking about race, speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Grant. Stay tuned. 
Our Common Ground. Blog Talk Radio. I'm Janice Grant. And we have with us tonight, uh, co-hosting, as always, Alpha, Kevin Gray. Hi, Janice. Kevin Alexander Gray. Hi, Janice. How are you? (laughs) Welcome, my brother. Welcome uh, again to our common ground. How are you? I can't complain. I went to see the grandkids play basketball and get beat like plantation slaves. But, but it was. I went to see my, my. I think my grandson is ten, and the kids he was playing, they had to be in their teens. It was, hey, you got to support the kids. Which I think is, you know, that, which is which is actually a good lead into this discussion because, you know, ultimately this is about. Uh, our grandkids and who all comes after us, and then um, that's all I thought about when I wa- besides watching them get beat so bad. You know, that's what it's really all about. What do you teach them? What do they fight for? What kind of politics do they uh, understand? How do they put things into context? How do they judge what's going on now? How do they take the now and the past and apply it to the future? And um, of course, I, you know, and, and I was listening to the show before you introduced me, and I could have listened to the brother who was speaking talk for another 10, 15, 20 minutes because I thought he was hitting all the right cues. Well, he always does. Yep. And uh, uh, Alpha is co-hosting with me. I, I know when you've been with us before, I haven't had a co-host, uh, but he keeps me in line. And you can hear him each uh, Saturday. At well, I know that's a tough Network. job, too. I know that's a hard job too. <laughs> he keeps you kind of in line. I'm, I'm doing kind better. Of line. Yeah, okay. As a matter of fact, by the time we end our broadcast tonight, uh, for those of you who might have forgotten, uh, by the time we end our broadcast tonight, uh, Alpho and Kevin and um, Sister Marpessa, I will be one year older. That's right. Striking at midnight. That's right. Uh, so um, I'm trying to get better. For those uh, of you who do not know, I'm starting to post in our chat room some information about our guests tonight because I think it's important for you to know who you are talking with and from where he comes. But, Kevin, try to give us a synopsis. I, I'm going to try. Because, How do we... But, let me before we go any further. I just want to because I want to don't want it to pass. I think that and if the if the listeners don't know, I just want to thank you on behalf of people who support justice for all you did for the Scott sisters. I just want to make sure I get well, that. Well, thank in. you very much. Yeah. All right. Now. I'm thank ready. you very much. Yeah. Uh, we still have a lot of work to do, but. Well, uh, you know, I I remember we when we had them with us last Saturday. I remember when and you were one of the few people that were posting their stories, their story out there on the Internet and in the public eye. So, you know, that struggle was a long struggle, but before the NAACP and the national people took notice of that story, there were people like you out there saying that an injustice was being done. So I want to make sure I just get that in, sister. Well, I I um I think that we cannot look at any situation 
and not call it what it is, no matter what it's about and what's being said about it. Okay. And that's one of the things that I appreciate about both of the gentlemen on this microphone tonight is that we we call truth to power. Um, we have an eye and an insight. And one of the things that your work, Kevin, has really spoken to me about is that you conceptualize today uh, in the context of history, and that brings some very, very clear understanding, very clear understanding, uh, and I wish more of us would do that. Give us a, give us a summary, Kevin, of where we are. Well, I think we're at the point of reorganizing. Um, it was interesting to watch on the Internet over the course of the Dr. King holiday, people struggling to find or connect to that Dr. King message that spoke to where do we go from here or the other America or um, even in the uh, Riverside speech, Beyond War. Um, and and that's what I, I think I've been listening to those speeches and reading those speeches all week long. I think it's a time of reorganizing a time to rebuild organizations or build new organizations to find a more democratic, coherent, consistent leadership in our community, to uh, go back and look at history and look at the fundamentals of, of our politics, the fundamentals of our movement, which I think in turn explain the fundamentals of our future. It's always been about fighting for the protection or advancement of due process, equal protection, equal treatment, equal opportunity, economic rights. And so if we can just get a focus on that, and in the context of how do you make that happen politically, how do you make that happen policy-wise, how do you make that happen as it relates to transfer of wealth, uh, the wealth that was stolen from our ancestors to where the disparities are here today to how we move ahead in the future, um, what kind of expectations that we place on our public officials, what kind of expectations do we place on ourselves, what kind of sustainable communities do we build, and what's the ideology behind those communities. And um, so, we, you know, we're just at that point where, where it seems like things are tough, and they are, because a lot of people are unemployed. I was reading that other America speech that Dr. King gave in 1967, 40 million people live below the poverty line. Right now, it's close to 45 million-plus people. And so it's still a matter of us staying on focus, demanding, and I'm not ashamed to say the words, reparations or wealth transference for for the, the free labor through slavery and Jim Crow that capitalism got out of us, and making sure that this government recognizes the, uh, the, the uh, wealth affront that this nation has launched or, or maintained against black people or people of, 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 of um, enslaved African descent throughout the uh, founding of this country. And, and um, you can't get too far away from that. Well, well you're, you're absolutely right that you can't get too far away from it, but one of the most difficult things, Kevin, and you know this, is that we can't get people to come to it. Well, you know, it's always it's, it's romantic to believe that 
it happened in the past like it happened in Tunisia or it's happening in Tunisia where people just rise up. And, and I think that that story is yet to be told. But, you know, movements are based on a few people taking the point and everybody else follows behind them. And so, you know, that's just that's just the, the cross that you have to bear. Everybody's not going to be there with you. But you still have to build and you still have to educate and you still have to organize. Regardless of who's in the White House and who's in power, you still have to organize. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, you talk about you were reading this past week uh, some of King's, and, and, and I constantly read his Riverside uh, uh, church speech uh, because I think that if you just trans- transpose some some places and locations and some dates, uh, he would be speaking to us today saying the same thing. But I was also reading a piece that you wrote in 2002 this week uh, on on the and when you were organizing against the the anti-confederacy flag campaign in South Carolina and i was thinking about what you did then and some of the uh other things that you know and i was looking at a 2007 piece you wrote for for counterpunch and i was thinking to myself well why hasn't there been more black progressive movement um, in uh, on on a on a on a, diff- on a lot of different planes, education. It's easy to uh, it's easy to sell out. You social know. service reform. But you, listen, I mean? it's, it's easier for leadership to sell out. It is absolutely easier. Mm-hmm. It, it's more comfortable. You make more money. Um, you don't worry about people being mad or upset with you. Um, it's very comfortable for a certain class of people to sell us out or to sell out. And so you, you can't give that short shrift, um, especially when you're just trying to make it just, you know, just living. And um, mm-hmm. so, you know, I don't, I don't know how you get past that unless we get to a point where we're funding our own movements and we're funding our own politics. And it's not so dependent upon what funding comes through the Democratic Party or what funding comes through what company. I mean, even when you look at mm-hmm. the, the, the troubles that are, that the NAACP seem to be facing with Wells Fargo, well, you and I both know that uh, when you look... Yeah. Why don't you tell our audience who might not be familiar with what that's about? Well, it's happening well, primarily in Baltimore. Well, Wells Fargo is just one of many banks that offered subprime loans to black folk um, and brown folk with the... I always thought that it was a Ponzi scheme from jump years ago when when people were getting these quick, easy loans. And, uh, you know, it's it's to keep you locked into a credit system. You know, you can have bad credit. You're still going to have to find a place to live. And regardless of how how it's divvied up, who pays who, if you pay a landlord for property that you're renting, you're paying the same person that you would pay if you were buying. You just, you know, it's, it's that the old adage, the poor pay more. And and it and it was always meant for developers and for the bankers to quick get that quick buck and to pass that paper around, but it was never meant to establish communities. It was never meant to keep people in one particular place. And Wells Fargo was one of the biggest culprits in the subprime uh, Ponzi scheme, 
and the NAACP, like a lot of organizations, um, I know the Rainbow Coalition, and everybody knows that who knows me knows I'm connected to Jesse Jackson, but I know they've received money. I'm pretty sh- I wouldn't be surprised if NAN, the National Action Network, didn't receive money, or the Urban League. You know, these big corporations give money to civil rights, so-called civil rights organizations and leaders as part of their advertising budget, as the cost, of the, the cost of doing business. So it's not any skin off their nose to give someone 100000 200000 a million dollars a year when you're making billions mm-hmm. of dollars. And so mm-hmm. the NAACP and, of course, uh, have a smiley, and a whole lot of folks have taken money from some of the very people who have uh, hoodwinked the community. And so, um, you know, but, but unless you can figure out a way that you can fund your organizations and that those organizations are democratic in which you can vote on the leadership, and and also in that you have to make sure that the people voting have some sort of consistent, coherent political philosophy that they're voting on, that they're holding people accountable to, then, uh, you know, people are going to survive the way they think they have to survive. Well, Kevin, wouldn't that be the same, and this is our fault, wouldn't that be the same blueprint that the big boys use, the corporations use with the media, and the corporations use with all of the other, uh, say, be it the right-wing think tanks that are funded by the Koch brothers, and they just send this money down in a flow to, I guess, uh, establish these. They pay for their politics. And that is the difference. That's, you know, of course, I don't differentiate between the uh, uh, Wells Fargo or Bank of America giving a civil rights organization money and them giving money to uh, support advertising or to advertise on Shandity. Uh, Sean Hannity's program or Rush Limbaugh's program is all the same thing. But one thing about the right is that they do fund their politics, and they do fund individuals that hold a place in their politics, which is something that we don't do. And you're saying that these Wells Fargo, like, you know, uh, Tavis Smiley has been linked to some of these very same entities. And along with the Action Network and Operation Push, these, these, this funding of these uh, of these groups per se is it just that the politics? The, the I mean of uh, 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 Action Network or NAACP, they are not as outspoken or as ad, you know in greater advocacy that than your. Freedom Works and your Heritage Foundations that are funded by the right—that is their total. That is their total and only reason for existence is to carry their political water. You know, well, it, the conversation is always difficult for me because, in all honesty, I know a lot of these people who run these organizations, and some of them I consider friends. That's what I find too, because you and, know them personally. You know, you you know where their heart is. And you also understand the corner in which they have placed themselves and the reasons why. Right. And and if you're living in America, you're getting your money from somebody. So, I mean, and that, so that's the dilemma. Um, but 
I'll go back to the to, to my main gripe with those organizations. Have they tried to really raise the money from their constituents, and have they been uh, true to their constituents so that they feel as though if they put their money there, it would be money well put? And okay, and 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 so that you know. Organizing is not easy. It's easy to take a check for $100,000 to to make someone, to give someone the 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 space to say, "Hey, look, this is look what we're doing. We're we're giving money to these black folk. We ain't so bad. We ain't we hire black folk. They, you know, that's the other thing that the power structure found out. If you know, you can hire black folk to do the same thing white folk are doing. We're doing to them that they were hollering about, and they'll stop hollering. So you know it it's um i i think that in the future that some organization is going to arise that is not so dependent upon that kind of corporate support to exist and and when we get to that point then maybe we can um we can get some movement but but right now that's the the dilemma is just in keeping the lights on and for a lot of these guys the dilemma is just in being able to be on TV and be seen and to be accepted. Yeah, and, and there's another. Go ahead. I'm sorry. There's another element I think organizationally that we have to understand, and we have to understand in the context of how, in middle class and poor families, we do our own budgeting and financing, and that is by the time these organizations get the money, they are so desperate because they have salaries. Uh, facility, they're, they're behind in the rent, they're behind in paying the printers, they're behind in paying the telephone company, they're behind in paying everything. So does every so church on every corner. Offered, but but so does exactly. every church on but so does every church on every corner in our community. And we give to those organizations on a regular basis, on a Wednesday, on a Sunday, and on whenever they ask us for some money. So it, it's about being and, there. Which none of these organizations mm-hmm. are right now. They're not there. Well, you know, if we can even extrapolate this this part of the discussion uh, in, into into the area of big media. For instance, uh, there has been over the last twenty four hours, I have had um, like hundreds of arguments. <laughs> I have been on threads of discussions, deep threads, uh, about um, how we rely on, say, Keith Oberman at MSNBC to, to, to partially take some of the, the pain out of trying to have public discourse uh, on the progressive side. And then we say to a BET and a TV One and a Radio One, why aren't you uh, aggressively addressing our issues in an informed way in the same way as MSNBC? And those organizations have the same exact kinds of problems as the community organizations because they are in such debt to the wrong people. I just don't think that that um, you're going to get the kind of revolutionary 
And I'm not talking about revolution as in everybody go get their guns and, and storm the White House or storm the Congress. But revolution is as a change of consciousness and a change in how we do business, which leads to a change in politics. You're not going to get that on anybody's network, on any Comcast, Time Warner, anybody that has a stake in the status quo. You're just not going to get that. You're going to get limits to that, and even with Oberman. You know, I'm, I'm, if Oberman's here, he's not here. Um, you know, um, I can, you know, I can take him or leave him. Sometimes he, he says something that I really would cheer him on, and then other times I'm like, man, what are you thinking about? So, and, and I thought yeah. that, uh-huh. and I thought that he was becoming a caricature. He was becoming the left's version of Rush Limbaugh. And so, you know, to some extent, it might be a good thing if he's a serious man that he does bow out of working with MSNBC and Comcast and the same people who are behind getting George Bush elected, the very person that he spent his career criticizing. Maybe that might be a good thing for his sanity. I just don't think that you're going to find um, that you're not going to find that a revolutionary spirit at any of the major networks. We are talking about the people who built, and we talk about MS, uh, MNBC, who built their own tank to send. Uh, who was the, the the journalist that got that died of the blood clot um, during the first days of the um, of the uh, of the war for NBC? Uh-huh. I mean, they built their, they built their own little yep. tank, and they they all agree to be embedded, and they, you know they you know these cats are making six figures. Um, you know, they're not thinking like the people who have to figure out how they're going to pay their rent. So, um, you know, yeah. I I think, you know, if it's – I think it might have been, as, as far as his integrity is concerned, it might have been a good move for him. Um, I, I think that he has a true progressive spirit. I'll give him that. Um, I thought that his comments after uh, uh, Tucson and this idea that we should – Quash the rhetoric. Well, you know, who's going to be deciding what it is that we're going to be saying? I don't, you know, I'm not for speech codes or, you know, if someone's got their foot on my neck, I want to tell them in the most strongest terms, get your foot off my neck or else. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, um, although I do separate um, laying blame to Sarah Palin for what happened to Tucson. Um, but then I'm not nostalgic about America. I think America is always is and has always been a violent nation. And um, so this idea that people reminisce about the good old days, I'm trying to figure out what good old days they're talking about. Was it yesterday, the day before? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know, you talk about what happened in Tucson, and people seem to forget that, what, uh, four or five months ago, um, there were the, the, the shootings out at Fort Hood, Texas, where 32 people got killed. Or they forget about um, what happened at the, um, the Budweiser plant in Connecticut. People kill people in this country all the time. It's a violent country. And so, you know, and, and you know, the, the day that, that that shooting was occurring in Tucson, here in South Carolina, they were firing off the cannons to commemorate the start of the Civil War. The week before that, they were having a secession ball. They fly a Confederate flag at the, on the State House grounds in South Carolina. Now, you know what? If folk want to talk about the Civil War and about how things used to be, well, you know what? I'm going to talk to them like they talking to me. 
you want me to be a slave, I'd be dead first. But before I'm going to be dead, I'm not going to be the only one. Then, then, but that's just me. So, that's your so I mean, I'm going to tell anybody else to talk like that. I, I, that's just me. So, so that, and that's the reality of our history and the rhetoric that comes out of our history. And, um, and, and if people want to talk nice on national TV because they have limits, that's fine. As I said back, if Keep Overman doesn't want to be confined to those limits, then, you know, you have to step out of that. But I don't think that you're going to get any of the national networks to um, preach overthrowing a system that earns them billions and billions of dollars every year, every every day. So, um, you know, I, I'm not crying any any tears for Keith Oberman. I just wish that we had a better mechanism for putting our own voices out there in a broader way, more independently. I mean, even we, you know, Janice, you and I, we communicate a lot on Facebook, and we get a lot of stuff out there, but we know there's limits to that. When they want to shut us down on Facebook, they'll shut us down. So Absolutely. Yep, so, so you know, and even with BET, I, you know, what BET, isn't it owned by Viacom now? Or yes. whatever, or whatever. Not that you would trust what it's they're... It's owned by Viacom. Right, not that you would trust what they're what they would put on in any regard because they've made it clear that it's just about entertainment and it's about a certain kind of entertainment. These kids down here, you, you when you go to Atlanta, when you go to North Carolina, South Carolina, Louisiana, there's a music that these kids have out in the streets that you'll never hear on BET unless it conforms to somebody shaking their butt so so you know um i i i think that you know we need to we need an independent consistent um message carrier and i don't necessarily think that it has to be totally black it has to certainly be progressive but but um but you know if it's just about entertainment and buying into let's say sponsorship by the washington post or sponsorship by the New York Times, a sponsorship by the Huffington Post sponsorship. I mean, I came out of the uh, the black newspaper uh, uh, side of the house, and so you know there 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 is a black media out there, um, and it's still not what it needs to be. What is not what it used to be, but I think that there needs to be a a, um, a more radical um, supported independent black media that develops in, in, in this in this crucial time. How do we begin to do that, Kevin? I mean, one of the things that always occurs to me is we start with what we have. We support what we have. I think that uh, the Bay State Banner, for instance, here in Boston, is one of the finest community newspapers that you can you can get. But we don't have the black business structure, advertising structure. We don't have the black community structure that supports it. You know, and I can include myself in that. Um, Mel um, King. I want to say Mel Rivers, but Mel Rivers is somebody else. Um, But the editor has been there since I came to Boston as a student. 
And I should be writing for the Bay State Banner. I should be writing something at least every two months for the Bay State Banner, and I don't do it. Well, and the question that is, is how we begin to support our our black media. Well, the question would be for someone that has worked with black media, and the good and the bad, um, does the publisher still have a community focus? And if he does, of course, they all struggle with advertising. But, um, you know, are they doing the things that, that, that make their paper grow? I know we're having problems here with one of our newspapers because the newspaper doesn't print anything um, other than the good news and um, so that the advertisers will continue to stick with them. And then, of course, we have the paper in Charleston, which is our, our old paper, which is tied to the community, has been around a long time, and is very popular, has a lot of local writers. So, it, it, you know, it can be done. Um, so, you know, it, it is a matter of what kind of new, newspaper it is and what kind of publisher that you're working with, and is that publisher willing to commit to the community as opposed to committing to getting that dollar in? Because a lot of them, you know, mm-hmm. they, if, if they are controlling uh, the circulation numbers, and the national advertisers just kind of write them in because they say, man, you know, we write these black folk in and we won't have no trouble out of black folk. If it's just about that and that's the only reason they exist, then maybe something else needs to exist. But if they're really working in the community and 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 um, finding the young black writers and training the young black writers because that's something we still have to do, um, and then... You know, there's a, another function that we have to do with younger black writers, and that is the part of the, a political education, and 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 trying to help them um, put things into context. Um, if if you've got that kind of a newspaper locally, then that's the kind of thing I think you can build on now. And then, of course, you do all the things well, that everybody else is doing. It was your fault that I started feeling guilty about it. Um, uh, and I really did start feeling guilty about it because uh, the editor has been a very committed and a very dedicated person to the development of the black community uh, here in the city of Boston and the surrounding areas. But I was reading when one of the things that you asked on King, um, King Day in your piece, and for those of you who are listening, we're talking with Kevin Gray, uh, the political analyst and activist of South Carolina. I, I, I just think of you as the president of South Carolina. But mm-hmm. if you'd well. like to know more about and read more about and hear more from Kevin Gray, you can go to his blog, which is uh, really an e-zine, uh, The New Liberator. And it's the address is being posted in the in the chat room at Our Common Ground. But for those of you who are listening, thenewliberator.wordpress.com. But one of the things that you said in your piece about King uh, on this King Day was that we were facing uh, a basic challenge, and the basic challenge was to discover how to organize our strength in terms of economic and political power. Uh, And that was a strange, that's a strange comment, Kevin, to make in the era of, uh, that we live in, that as black people we are looking up and out at a black president or African-American president, uh, that we are still posing the same challenge. Did you, We're did you, still did, facing the same challenge. Did you, um, I posted the um, where do we go from here speech 
that uh, King made at Stanford, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is really an economic speech. And uh, mm-hmm. you, you kind of get the roots of Operation Breadbasket. You get the roots of uh, these fair share agreements that have run amok um, at this point in history. And and what King was trying to do, this whole idea of, of, of wealth development. Now, as I said, I'm a reparations brother. I think that that descendants of enslaved Africans deserve an economic grub stake if you believe that slavery was a linchpin of capitalism. So fundamentally, I believe that. The, what happened with the black farmers and the Pickford settlement, that wasn't enough. Um, but now, that doesn't mean intellectually that I'm hoping that the government sends everybody a billion-dollar check. It could be a lot of different things. It could be the, the pressuring... The, uh, the president to um, to support single payer because that that does at least get at the wealth disparity if you consider the amount of money that people pay in health care. You could talk about um, moratoriums on home mortgage foreclosures, or you can talk about um, um, some kind of homesteading act. You could talk about free public education. And, and, of course, when you refer back to the King speech, and King talks about the triple evils of uh, racism, exploitation, and militarism, then you say, well, we got soldiers in 700 places around the world. we got two wars going on. We've had a war every 20 years since we've been in existence. Maybe we ought to be talking about a peace dividend or anti-war dividend to pay for some of this transfer of wealth. And so then you have to figure out how to organize to make that happen, which we have not done since probably the death of Dr. King. I, I would think that that, that shot, that, that, that murder of Dr. King in, in, in Memphis pretty much cut that kind of economic message off, and then everybody else just took the buyout. So I think we, we have to go back to those speeches, the, the where do we go from here speech, and look at that economic analysis about a transfer of wealth and or a third economic way. You know, the, the, the King talked about the uh, capitalism and, 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 and communism and one being anti-individual and one being anti-social, and there needed to be a third way. Well, I think, and especially in regards to the, the uh president of China coming and the country being in debt to China and, and, and America not being at the top of the heap anymore, that we have to talk about what is sustainable. And I would argue that what is, what is sustainable is, to, is to, to figure out how to make communities of color economically sustainable. Now, I hope I made sense mm-hmm. in all that. Yeah, you, you did. And, but what, what strikes me, Kevin, and I don't know what um, Alpha's response to it is that <clears throat> over time we continue, you know, in that speech. What 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 does King say? Say a, he talks a lot about how truth being crushed will rise again. And then I look at your work, some of the stuff you've done at Counter Counterpunch and some of the writings on um, the New Liberator, and, and we keep saying the same thing. In, 19, in, in 2003, you wrote a counterpunch, and I'm looking at it. We live in dangerous times. 
if we don't mobilize our children's lives, our lives and future is in peril. We must act. We are in 2011. You are saying the same thing. You are saying what King said before he was assassinated. And I'm wondering if at some point we have to stop and say, wait a minute, evidently what we're doing is not working. You know the saying, keep doing what you're doing, keep getting what you're getting? You know, we have we have lulls, and, and if you were, listen, I'm 53, I'm, and I ain't going to ask you how old you are, but Dr. King was 39 when he died. The, the, the thing that's missing in all this, when we got involved in politics, we were all young. And we were, and I, I asked a friend of mine, I said, how were we young and had a consistent, coherent politic even in our 20s and 30s? Where did we get yes. that from? Our kids don't have that. So <laughs> our kids don't have that. I mean, the, the generation after us, our kids don't have what we have. So part of it is trying to figure out how to energize and mobilize them into some consistent movement, and let the, it is about letting them lead. Mm-hmm. So I mean that's mm-hmm. you know you keep but saying we had it, you keep saying it. Yeah, good yeah. I mean, you and your sister segre- uh, desegregated schools in Columbia, South Carolina. I desegregated a school in West Palm Beach, Florida. Those experiences politicized us at a very early age. Exactly. We understood. You know, one of the things that I love about my organization that Sister Marquesa and I and some others put together last year in response to a lot of things that's going on and our experiences and being able to, ex- to share those experiences is we were part of a crossover. So we could see the past and see the future. And we're not creating that kind of opportunity for our children. We're not explaining. You know, like I listen to my mother's 86 years old. I listen to her talk about her childhood. I listen to her talk about um, the way things were for her when she was growing up. And I mirror them to my own childhood and say, my goodness, there was just so much progress um, in in one generation. But then I look at what might be labeled progress between my generation and my adult daughter's generation and say, wait, there might have been movement, but I wouldn't necessarily call it progress. Well, you have to. You, we have to figure out. How, figure out, and I'm actually it's a chapter in this second book, and I've been working on the title of the chapter. I started out and I called the chapter "Bling," the age of Reagan. And I thought about it. I said, "Well, you know, because Reagan and the era of Reagan, which we are still in, even with this uh, president, we are in the age of Reagan." And I thought about it. I said, "Well, the age of Reagan, the age of Oprah." the age of Nike, the age of the two Michaels, the age of individualism, where when these kids fail, although we can look at the numbers and accumulate it, the numbers look at there's a huge uh, ethnic racial failure on our parts. And, and we've got these kids believing that it's all their individual fault. That is not the system that was erected to protect a certain status quo 
that that has them uh, struggling to survive, and uh, or, or you know, in and out of jail or whatever. It's their fault. We we have to deconstruct all that, and and talk about putting the the context of our experience, our parents' experience, their parents' experience, and so on. You know, you 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 always have to figure out a way to pass that down. Now, maybe as I said, when you talk about building community organizations, you have to build community organizations, political organizations that have a politic uh, with uh, connected to them. I mean, you know, it, 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 they've got to stand for certain things. They've got to be anti-sexist. They've got to be anti-racist. They got to be. They can't be the things that we're fighting against, internally or externally. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you mm-hmm. know, it, it, mm-hmm. it may even mean uh, having a freedom school component, which I think is important because you have to get, you have to, in, in, to some extent, uh, help kids unlearn things. Because we turn these kids over to the school, school system that, as I said, you know, it, it's, it's about... If you can make it here, you can make it anywhere, the American dream. And and we know that the American dream ain't all it's cracked up to be. So you have to you have to um have some sort of independent something to to uh help deconstruct that that uh imprint that they get from the school system and have to give them some sort of coherent political analysis of things. And that's what's missing in a lot of the, the community organizations or the civil rights organizations. Right now, as I said, if you look at the main organizations that we have out there, be it the NAACP, the Rainbow NAN, or the Urban League, they're all um, leader-driven. Um, you know, it's, it's about that leader coming in and saving you. It's not about building on the local level. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, you just have to go back to square one, which is which is – what I've been arguing for, I guess, the last ten years, which is, you know, I, at some point in time, I hope that some young folk, some young person, will pick up on it. And, you know, my job is just to push it down the road. It ain't necessarily at this point in my life to to go out there and build it. I can help folk build it, but I think that, um, you know, it's more empowering that people build it for themselves. Mhm. You know, the last time you were with us at our common ground, uh, you were just about finished with with the wonderful book waiting for lightning to strike the fundamentals of black politics and we got to take a break but when we come back i want to talk about that book and and what you're working on now okay. because i think that the key is us finding striking the right balance in community organizing and conceptualizing it in the political landscape in in which we live. You're listening to Our Common Ground. I have Kevin Gray, the political analyst with us in this first page, and my co-host, Alpha. When we come back, we'll talk more with Kevin Gray about uh, political organizing, community organizing, and kind of like how we keep this ship going and we'll take your calls. We have people on the board. We know 773 will be with you. 704 will be with you when we come back. Oh, we can play some family songs tonight. Y'all ready? Are y'all ready to sing it? Uh, y'all ready to sing it? Yeah. 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 Yeah.
This is Our Common Ground at Blog Talk Radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. that the ice cream scoop can make a child smile and that by slowing us down the traffic light can keep us going you know that the lawnmower makes life easier that the blood bank makes life possible but did you know all these ideas came from the minds of african americans support the united negro college fund because a mind is a terrible thing to waste visit uncf.org or call 1-800-332-UNCF brought to you by uncf and the ad council have we looked, at, looked into the eyes of evil, pure evil, and said to ourselves, what is this country coming to? What have these bigoted races, and I'll repeat it, bigoted races. Anybody wants to challenge me on that? Have that. Have that. Reload some Alpha, the Mo Alpha Show, on TruthWorks Network. More of the Alpha Show, 4 p.m., TruthWorks Network. President Barack Obama, stand and fight. You can win against the politics of no and no idea. You can win against obstruction. Yes, you can. We still too often feel that we must go to them to ask permission to be us. We still think we have to ask authorization whether or not we can tell our story our way. We still think that we can only build the America that we want by getting permission from them to have access to make it what we want it to be. The reality of it is, is that we, America, wouldn't be what it is had we not taken the initiative and the prerogative to make it our way despite what they wanted us to do. With the issue of miseducation, our whole, my, 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 my primary belief is that our greatest sense, our greatest disempowerment has been the systematic effort to make us unconscious of our conscious power. That somehow we don't know our real power. We don't know who we are. I think that... And thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. Our guest in this first page is Kevin Gray, the political uh, analyst and the author of a book that I highly recommend for reading and for your library and for uh, gifts, Waiting for Lightning to Strike the Fundamentals of Black Politics. And you can do a Google uh, a search on your favorite book uh, store and uh, purchase this book by, by Kevin Gray. You can also find him 
at thenewliberator.wordpress.com. And also, he is a contributing writer for counterpunch.org, and he can be heard with his friend. You know, Kevin, uh, you and Dave crack me up. <laughs> because that's a, that's that satellite radio where you can say anything you want to say. <laughs> I know he is a crazy man. <laughs> he, he and I go, you know, he and I go way back, and we met in Central Park. I think back in '92, where he forced me to get up on stage in the middle of 35,000 people and sing, "This land is your land." <laughs> I said, like, "You're the only you, white boy in America know, that can make me do this." But he's a he, listen. He's a great brother. If you don't know Dave Marsh, you can catch him on Sirius Radio 146 on Sundays, four to five, live from the land of hopes and dreams. I did see a photograph of you and uh, and and Dave in, in Central Park. Yeah, it looked like you were trying to figure out what planet. Did these people bring me on? Well, you know, and We're I met, go to our phones. And I met Phil Spector that summer, too. Oh, really? Yep, I met wow. Phil Spector that summer. We're, that was an interesting year. <laughs> As you can imagine. Um, I, I, I know. I mean, we we do some, uh, some things uh, on this journey. 773, you're on the air with Kevin Gray and Alpha at Our Common Ground. I respect you, Hotep. What's up? Hey, Janice, Alpha, Kevin, this is a uh, house, the music, house music lover. What's going on? It's good to hear you guys. Yep. Hey, House, how's it going? It's all right. Uh, I just want to call in and um, tell Kevin, uh, first heard of you through Janice, but as you just, just mentioned, um, you were with Dave Marsh that third hour of his show, and that's where I get my biggest dose of you. Um, Thank you, And you guys, you guys are good. I haven't, hadn't heard of Dave until uh, I was listening to Mark, and he filled in for Dave, uh, he, Dave filled in for Mark, and I've been hooked since, and that was sometime last year, and I try and catch you guys' show every Sunday. And um, what's really refreshing is not just his take, but he gets to bring you in and it really uh, compound on a fresh take and a different spin, and with your background, you seem like you always related back to uh, a struggle, an organization struggle, and a what can we do um, in terms of moving forward, and which I, I really appreciate. And one of the things I'm seeing that's really difficult that I keep trying to over the last few months, as I've realized, try to vocalize is that in the struggle to wake people up about what's really going on, because we have a black president now, and he's part of the 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 the, the concrete, the the stone. He's Washington. He's the president, because he's that. He's that big block right there to get people, especially black folks, to wake up and organize. It's almost like to organize against him. And this uh, and yeah, that's gonna, yeah. what's going to be so difficult because. People are going to be hesitant, um, if not downright ignorant, um, in knowing his part, his involvement, and being willing to speak up against him. Well, I mean, you can't, you can't, you can't give short shrift to how much people want to be accepted by white folk and the system generally, mm-hmm. and and they vest that in Obama. 
So right. you, you got to you got to factor that in. And you, but that's so misguided right now because uh, I, I think one of the truest things um, Barack Obama said was during the uh, one of the um, uh, debates, somebody asked a question about Dr. King, who would he favor, him or McCain? I can't remember Kay McCain's answer, but I'm sure it was dumb. But Barack Obama said that, look, um, I don't think he would support either one of us. He would just hold whoever won office accountable. And But the problem with most people, especially black people, is that they don't want to hold him accountable. They just want to say, well, he's our first black president, so let him do what he can do or has to do, and it'll be all right. And I looked at the latest uh, uh, polls on how people felt about the direction of the country. And black folk were more optimistic about the direction of the country than whites, even with uh, double-digit unemployment. Exactly. But, you know, I, I, I still think that, um, you know, you're, you have to, you know, you give people their space. Mm-hmm. I don't think that you try to, to let them overwhelm you with their false consciousness. But I, I, I think that you still maintain what the empire is about, and that's how you get around um, focusing on Barack and whether or not people have their success or failure or their identity all wrapped up in him. And Mm -hmm. ultimately, as I said, if you're consistent with it, then they're going to come to your your point of view. I I wrote a piece about Bill Clinton way back. I've never been with Bill Clinton. I was with Jesse. And it was scathing. Did you not? Say that Bill Clinton in that piece was uh, a, a, a lightning, not a lightning strike. You you said that. Wait a minute, please Bill let me southern, remember this one. Uh, what did you cracker. say about Bill Clinton? That's probably why I'll never be on MSNBC because I have said that about him. So, a version but. of Thurman. That's what you said. Y- you know, and and I wrote about. Thurman. And black folk were not mad at Bill Clinton until he came to South Carolina and likened Barack to Jesse Jackson. Mm. Mm. That's when they got mad. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. They got, and for all the wrong reasons. Like for the, why they, they liked him for all the wrong reasons. They liked him because, you know, he played the saxophone and he, he screwed around. Mm-hmm. He was musical and he screwed yes. black stereotypes. And he claimed he didn't inhale. And he claimed he didn't inhale. So you know, well, but, I so you, just I just don't think that people can uh, bring all of the issues together in the way that you brought them together in waiting for lightning to strike. Uh, because one of the things that I think that you did was, you know, you you brought together all of the reasons that we have this dissent of of black leadership into what you call total ineffectiveness. And you brought the itinerary, uh, the personal itinerary of Barack Obama. Uh, The book, I I was a little bit confused because the book was published right before he was inaugurated or right after. It was right before. It was the the, the second book, The Audacity of Hope. I, I did a review on the audacity of hope for the progressive magazine and um you know it was just a boring book i mean even if you compared it to um to uh profiles in courage or even even jesse's book uh straight from the heart or ross perot's book um 
as a political book, I didn't think it was all that good. It was just something that introduced the candidate. I think the more telling book yes. is Dreams of from My Father. And I've included some passages from that book in this in the second book, The Decline of Black Politics, from Malcolm X to Barack Obama, and where he talks about uh, Langston Hughes, Du Bois, Malcolm X, and Baldwin when he when he discovered Baldwin and when he was searching for his blackness, and he considered the, uh, Baldwin, Du Bois, and uh, Langston Hughes bitter, angry men. Hmm. But now, if you mm-hmm, consider mm-hmm. that that brother grew up in Hawaii. And who raised him? And I'm not saying it as a negative. It, it, you know, of course, he doesn't have the same experience that you had growing up in Boston or I had growing up in South Carolina. He well, had, I had you know, and that's what people seem to forget. I mean, you know, no doubt in America he is. When you look at him, he's black, or he's a person of color. But even as I as I write in this book, in um, when he came on the scene, his political role model was John F. Kennedy, and and that's yes. who he patterned his and policy. And Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, and they, Abraham, Abraham Lincoln, Lincoln was the one that kind of like messed me up. And he was well, you know what? I I might could go with that, but he was Abraham Lincoln without Grant and Sherman. He was Abraham Lincoln <laughs> asking asking Robert E. Lee to to, to take over the Union. Too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you look at what you what you point out in in the book, Kevin. One of the things that I thought was brilliant about the book is you mirror him to Bill Clinton. How Bill Clinton blocked Lonnie Guineer in the same way that, and as you say, you flash forward to the dismissal of Van Jones, the one authentic person that he had on his staff. Right. And and but although that, you know to be fair to Lonnie because you know when Lonnie was Lonnie was talking about real structural change in politics if you're talking about cumulative voting proportional representation which is how black folks have gained their comeuppance in the Democratic Party from Fannie Lou Hamer through Shirley Chisholm through Jesse Jackson through Barack Obama this idea of proportional representation is why Barack Obama emerged as a viable candidate, be it in Iowa or South Carolina, then then, you know, that's that's his political lineage more so than John Kennedy. So mm-hmm. just Okay, I, mean, just I, for, I, I I get you. Just for yeah, him to yeah. say that. I mean was an because Yeah, I mean I I lived in West Palm Beach, Florida. Um and Andrew Brimmer was uh, a friend of my father's, and I witnessed how Kennedy moved so so easily through segregation and Jim Crow. For instance, Andrew Brimmer could not uh, um, be housed in a hotel and was housed at at our home. And you know, and he was on Kennedy's staff for crying out loud. And people don't understand that. Uh, the book is uh, waiting for lightning to strike the fundamentals of black politics. And what's the, the title of the new book, Kevin? It's called The Decline of Black Politics from Malcolm X to Barack Obama, although in my preface I struggle with the subtitle because I, I thought the subtitle was sexist. 
and uh, and then as I said, if you look at where we really are politically today, I love Malcolm, but um, I I would link our our movement in national politics back to Fannie Lou Hamer uh, as opposed to Malcolm, and and uh, I would have opted okay. if I you know if I had had a choice in it. I would have opted to do that, but of course, you know, when you go from a radical icon to a mainstream icon, you know, they wanted the book to come out right after he got elected, and and I just kind of drug my feet on it. But um, I think it's yeah. going to be an interesting book. Um, you know, a, a lot of the things that we're talking about this evening, the confusion that people seem to have in their mind about where our politics come from and where it's going and where it's at. I'm I'm trying to cut through some of that in this book. This idea of um, the messianic leadership and waiting for the one leader and how things are organized. Um, you know, as you said, you know, you and I desegregated schools. Uh, there were a lot of folk like us across the country, and a lot of parents like our parents that um, put their kids out there on the front line, or they stood out on the front line, and that's how things move. You know. You, the, the title could have easily had been from Oliver Brown, who was the plaintiff at, in, in Brown versus Board of, Board of Education. You know, Oliver Brown worked at the uh, railroad shop, I think, for the Santa Fe Railroad. So, you know, movements aren't necessarily hinged on the great man, the great woman emerging. It's about folk on an everyday basis figuring out, you know, we got to fight this and organizing it to fight it locally. And and everybody don't sign up first time out. You just got to know mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Ain't never going to happen. Will you come back and talk with us uh, about the new book? Sister, um, you know you're always in touch with um, me. I don't know why you even said that. You know that you're way in touch. Anytime you, anytime you call me, I'm going to answer your call. Well, I, I certainly thank you. You are a brilliant organizing mind. And... You know, I, I, I try to figure out how come people, you know, like I will send lists to people like uh, Keith Overman and Rachel Maddow and, and other people and say, here are some people, here are some voices that you need to hear because once you hear them, you will be more informed about what you're talking about and the, and the, and the, the landscape that you need to widen in terms of your uh, what you're doing in TV, radio, whatever it is. But, Kevin, I just uh, think that, you know, one of the things that we ha- I say all the time we have to do is we have to do more writing. We have to stop talking, sit down, get a pencil, and start writing. There you because go. Because the written word is so enduring. And At least to put the record down. At, at, at least to set the record. Yes, absolutely. Uh, House, thank you so much for your call. I hope uh, you'll thanks, stay Janet. with us. Um, and if I can, Kevin, you know, when's I, I the wanna... new book coming out? Don't Go ask, ahead, Kevin. Don't, don't ask me that. Don't, don't ask me that. How you ask your question? You, you're asking the publisher's question. <laughs> I, I just want to thank Kevin. Uh, one of the first times uh, I called Dave Marsh, um, uh, somehow he got me talking about my conversion. And um, he let me talk for like 15 minutes or so and get uh, trying to talk through all these um, bewilderments and confoundments I, I had found over the last two or three years. Um, got off the phone. Kevin came on. We talked about um, you some more. 
He did. You did, actually. But you, what, what amazed me was that you, you got it, and you were able to sum up what I couldn't say in 20, 15, 20 minutes in the one simple uh, sentence, which was um, he realized that since he became a Muslim, that people really, 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 really don't like him now. <laughs> I was like, brother gets it. So, um, yeah, man, I would definitely try and get your books and um, definitely keep you up front as one of the people I need to listen to and read, you know, Thank just you, to brother. say it, just to stay in tune. So thanks a lot, man. I appreciate everything you I do. I appreciate you. And thank, right, you. thank you very well, much. As I always say, the real Kevin Gray is at The New Liberator. The New Liberator dot wordpress.com, and you can also find him at counterpunch.org. Kevin, thank you so very much for uh, coming with and being with us again and um, expounding on things that sometimes get all of us very confused. I hope I made some um, sense. And, and I'm really looking forward to the new book. Alpha? Kevin, I want to thank you. Uh, this has been very informative for me. I can uh, I can hear and, and understand and, and basically go go the way you're speaking. But uh, at at our at our at our highest point, we you're you're absolutely right about your assessment of where we need to go and the the organizations, the so-called leaders and representation we need. Brother, listen, if I could uh, get some of those speeches that I've been hearing in the, in the break, I'd appreciate that. <laughs> you, can, you can join us every Saturday night, and I, will, I, 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 got, I know your number. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I see. Okay. <laughs> well, don't be so hard on those basketball players down there. I've got a swimmer up here, and you just have to keep – uh, telling them they're doing good. All right. Kevin Gray, All thank right. you so All much. Right. Yep. And uh, as as we are, we are in touch. I love you, my brother. That was uh, my brother, Kevin Gray. You're listening to Our Common Ground at Blog Talk Radio. I'm here with our co-host, uh, Alpho. And when we come back, we're going to be talking with yet another Our Common Ground friend, Neil Franklin. He's the National Executive Director of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. We'll be right back. You stay with us, won't you? You're listening to Our Common Ground. Alpha's on board. Don't you dare touch that mouse. We'll be right back at Our Common Ground. Say if you want a wish to come true, never tell anyone. But there is one wish that can make the difference between life and death. And this wish can only come true if you tell someone. Please let your family know you want to be an organ donor. I believe in truth. I believe in truth. I believe in truth. I believe in truth. Works Network.
I'm Janice Graham. Join me on TruthWorks Network, Conversations in Deep Waters. Hi, I'm Dr. Deborah Napier, and I would love to have you join me on TruthWorks Network here, and I am restoring hope, healing through connection at TruthWorks Network. This is our phone. It would be my honor if you would join TruthWorks Network. Hi, I'm Denise Bowles, and I'd like you to join me on TruthWorks Network. Live talk programming, TruthWorks Network, premiering February 1st with Dr. Deborah, Denise Bowles, and Alpha. We're working truth Monday through Friday at TruthWorks Network Radio. Come get your truth on. TruthWorks Network. And we hope you will join us, too, at TruthWorks Network. Uh, it all begins on February 1st with the premiere show with Dr. Deborah. And the show is called A Heart for My People, and we hope that at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, you'll join her uh, in her premiere uh, weekly show, A Heart for My People. Thank you again for being with us, and Alpha, thank you for being with us once again. Uh, in the second half, um, we're going to be talking with Neil Franklin of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. And we're going to be talking about the controversy and the hostilities by police officers, uh, officers across this country on uh, the issue of marijuana reform. You stay with us, and thank you for being with us, and we'll come right back with Neil Franklin. Get him in, get him in. That sun is hot and plenty bright. Let's get out of business and get home tonight. Get him in. Auctioning slaves is a real high art. Bring that young gal, Roy. She's good for a start. Get him in, get him in. In America, the U.S. imprisons nearly one half million people for nonviolent drug offense. In the so-called war on drugs, which accounts for most of this prison increase. It is consuming and chewing up young black men. Three times as many blacks are in jail as are in college. Blacks are 13% of all drug users, but roughly one half of all drug-related prisoners. Today, there are more American blacks in prison than there were slaves. American blacks are imprisoned at nearly six times the rate of South African blacks during apartheid. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we are very afraid. We'll be talking with Neil Franklin, a retired Maryland state police major and now the executive director of LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. We should be very afraid. The war on drugs has created a form of slavery in America for which there will be no emancipation proclamation. What are the lies, what are the confusions, and why do we continue to spend tax dollars on a strategic program that does not work? How the war on drugs has created the new slavery right here in America, 2011. Stay tuned at Our Common Ground. 
We'll be right back. Just look at her face. She sure ain't homely. Like she in the Bible. She's black but comely. Bit her man. Gonna start at three. Can I hear three? Step up, Jan. Take a good look. See, because I know you want her once you see her. She's young and ripe. Make a darn good breeder. Bit her man. She's good in the field, she can sew and cook. Strip her down raw and let the gentleman look. She's full up front and ample behind. Examine her teeth if you got a mind. Bid them in, get them in. And the war on drugs, Alpha, certainly has brought us to a new form of slavery in this country. It is feeding a private prison industrial complex, and it is draining the coffers of law enforcement dry and the resources of law enforcement that should be placed in other places are being drawn against something that's not working. Neil Franklin, my brother, (laughs) thank you so much for being with us one more time at Our Common Ground. And I have to say, this is your first appearance since you've become the National Executive Director of LEAP. Yes, it is. Janice, my sister, and I'm so glad to be back. It's been too long. Yeah, it really has. <laughs> um, Neil, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with LEAP, take us over exactly what law enforcement against prohibition is trying to do, Neil. Uh, sure. You are a 33-year law enforcement veteran. Yes, 33 and, years. Uh, you have been involved with LEAP. How many years now? Uh, I've been with LEAP, even though I knew about them when they first started in 2002 and made my first contact then, I've been speaking for them just a little over two years. And LEAP, so folks know, it began, just real quick here, it began with five cops back in 2002 who had uh, their careers in, in law enforcement and fighting the war on drugs. Uh, one of the main organizers, Jack Cole, did undercover narcotics work in New Jersey and New York for over 15 years. And these five cops realized that the war on drugs wasn't working. Uh, they, they saw how many people were going to prison who didn't uh, deserve to be there and the money that was being spent and the people who were dying, and they decided to form this organization. And it started with those five uh, guys, and uh, now we're an international organization with close to 40,000 members. Now, all of those members uh, are not cops. Uh, There's a few thousand who are a mixture of cops, judges, prosecutors, and prison officials, corrections, and we even have some folks, former DEA and uh, FBI uh, agents on board. Mm -hmm. And um, what we want to do, what we have set out to do, is to do what the initial uh, cause was was about. I mean, when they they started the war on drugs, there were some people who thought that they were going to reduce crime, disease, death, and addiction. And as we all know, that hasn't worked over the past four decades. And we set out, we we aim to do the very same thing, but we're going to do it by eliminating the war on drugs and putting some common sense into our drug policies and let our drug policies uh, be constructed and led by 
health professionals, not law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Now, so, recently there was an article in the Huffington Post that talked about police offices across the country who had become very hostile uh, to um, drug reform proposals uh, across the board. How did this start, and what does it mean, Neil? Well, um, and you're right. Uh, One of the main organizations out there um, in opposition to this drug, into our policy reform, is an organization from California called the uh, California Narcotics Officers Association. And um, it's led by an individual by the name of Ron Brooks, who just recently came here to Maryland to testify against medical cannabis. And, you know, I there are many reasons as to why they are opposed. Um, for the most part, the men and the women who are in the trenches every day in the streets, most of them get it that this is not a winnable war, this is not a war that's doing our, doing our country any good, and that we need to change. See, most of these these police officers came on board to go after rapists and murderers and child pedophiles and those who commit domestic violence and, and those violent acts against people. The problem is with the hierarchy. The problem is with those administrators who are balancing their budgets uh, through federal funds. They're balancing their budgets on the backs of uh, asset forfeiture uh, laws throughout the country. Um, they're also have, they also have built dynasties. Now, you have to realize when you build a dynasty such as the DEA, Office of National Drug Control Policy and the likes, and many of these other uh, law enforcement agencies, agencies that are out there, when you build these dynasties, you're talking about power and control. And how many people do you know that want to relinquish any of their power and control? So there, there are many different uh, dynamics, many, many different things that come into this. It's not just one thing. And then you have the tunnel vision. Then you have the lies that we've been fed throughout these decades. And, Janice, I was one of these people. You know, I wasn't into it for the power or the control, but I had the blinders on for a couple of decades here, and I truly started to believe all the things that I had been taught, you know, in that wonderful world of law enforcement that we had, that we could actually put a stop to the drugs coming into our country. You know, they have you believing that, you know, but then there comes a time when you're making all these seizures, you're locking up all these people, and then you realize that, you know what, um, every year we're making larger seizures, seizures of drugs and we're, we're, we're locking up more people and, as soon as we arrest people, there are more people into the business. And so there comes a time when you really have to just, just stop. And for me, unfortunately, for me, as you know, it took the, the death of a close friend. And um, so the hierarchy, if we, could, if we could do something with the hierarchy, then we, we'd make some headway here. And, and, and how, I mean, we're talking about, Leap um, uh, 
being in in place since 2008 uh, as a national organization. Now you've moved into the international arena. Who's listening to LEAP at this point? I, I know my good friend, uh, Judge Gray, uh, who, who, by the way, um, has been here a number of times. Yeah. You've got judges. You've got law enforcement. You've got prosecutors. You've got some sections of state attorney's office across this country talking about how the war on drugs and the mandate to have a war on drugs is simply draining, running uh, states into bank, uh, contributing to states going into bankruptcy, and nobody's listening. Yeah, you, one of the things that that's a good point. And but one of the things you know, you will notice the people who are listening, actually the people who are coming out and speaking against this. One thing you notice that most of them just happen to be retired or, or no longer in the business. Because now there's there's no self interest and but, but first and foremost they feel safe. They know that their careers cannot be jeopardized and their careers are no longer in jeopardy from those who have the power uh, to either terminate them or you know stifle their growth or what have you. We have um, a a border patrol officer who was who was terminated because he expressed his views. Now he's still doing his job. But he expressed his view to a coworker that, you know, yeah, those, those those men and women at LEAP, you know, they really have something there because they know we have to change our drug policies. They know we have to legalize, regulate, and control our drugs to have a better chance of keeping this stuff away from our kids and so that we don't continue to drive our country deeper and deeper into bankruptcy. Now, his coworker went back and mentioned that to his supervisor, and they terminated this guy. And, of course, we're going to support him. And there was another um, uh, parole officer in um, Arizona who had the very same thing happen to him last month. So this is why many of the men and women who are currently in law enforcement who do believe, as we do at least, are afraid to speak out and won't speak out because they have – their families uh, to take care of, and, of course, many of them are, you know, uh, very concerned about their careers and what have you. But the people who are listening and, and making the turn are the ones that do leave law enforcement. And you mentioned some names. I mean, we have, in, on our advisory board, we have folks from Canada. We have folks from, uh, from uh, the U.K., from Belgium from Colombia, from New Mexico, from, you know, in the states, outside of the states, uh, uh, Brazil, um, Wales. We're about to open up a branch in Australia right now. See, this just isn't the United States we're talking about. This is a worldwide issue. The U.N. follows the lead of the United States, and because of that, the rest of the world is 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 pretty much um, under the, the the control of U.S. policies. There are many countries that want to get out from and out and, and from under these these Ar- Arcanian drug policies that we have. 
these draconian policies. Portugal has made great headway. Since 2002, Portugal has decriminalized every drug uh, where you can possess a small amount. Uh, Teenage use of all drugs has decreased substantially. AIDS and Hep C, hepatitis, new cases are virtually non-existent. Overdose rates are in the basement. Um, They've had great success. And, and all they did was decriminalize. They still had the illegal market, so they still had the violence surrounding that. But because they took that one step to decriminalize, they're having great success. And treatment has gone up considerably because people are no longer afraid to seek treatment. And they had the money to do it. They've even closed the prison or two. So people are listening. Uh, People are listening to us. We have a branch also in Canada. Uh, We're going to open up a branch in Poland, and we're also looking at uh, Mexico. Um, It it seems like the momentum of the increased number of prisons that are being built in this country, prisons that are private in nature, and that this war on drugs is is being used to also, uh, as part of an enforcement strategy against uh, immigrants who are both legal and illegal in this country. So I'm not seeing the outcomes, Neil, and that's what um, I want to try to get my, 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 my brain around. Okay. Because well, the reform is not coming. There is still a drug war. Um, Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow, has documented how this entire drug war has created a whole generation of a new form of, of j- both Jim Crow and slavery in this country. And I just don't see any changes. Well, let me let me say this to you. First of all, Michelle's book, marvelous, absolutely marvelous. It is my new Bible for this effort. And um, Michelle and I are, are have started to do some things together, and you're going to see and hear more about that. Now, um, That's great. I mean, for, for your listeners, they, they have to, I mean, if you're listening, you, you have to get that book, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. It will open your eyes. And she wrote it. She wrote it for us. She wrote it for, uh, actually she says she wrote it for herself because, you know, (laughs) she was completely blind to this until something pushed her in that direction, but I won't spoil it for you. Go ahead and get the book. Um, Just a couple of decades ago, Janice, if you had taken a poll for those who thought that we should legalize, and I'll, I'll just start with marijuana, that we should legalize marijuana, a few decades back you I believe that poll was probably down around 20-something percent. But nationally, if you take that same poll today, it's very, very close to 50% in the high 40s, very high 40s. So the bar is moving. We are moving the bar. The people who are listening are people like your listeners. And we've come to realize that we're not going to move this issue through our legislators. We're not going to move it through Capitol Hill. 
we're going to move this issue at the grassroots level, in the neighborhood, in the community centers, through the citizens. It was the citizens in California who decided to put that issue for marijuana legalization in a referendum so that they could vote for it during the last election. And unfortunately, in most of our states here on the East Coast, we do not have that option for a referendum. But on the West Coast, they're exercising that right that they have. And in 2012, you're going to not only see Cal- – mark my word on this. You're not only going to see California do it again. You're going to see probably Colorado and maybe Arizona and maybe another state. You might even see one or two on the East Coast drive, maybe like Maine. So people are listening. Uh, there is traction. We are moving the issue. And the five guys that I mentioned who started LEAP back in 2002, eight years ago, said that we don't think we'll see it in our lifetime, but we're going to get this issue moving because we need to. But you know what? I think they will see it move substantially in their lifetime. I think... I have no doubt that they will see the legalization of marijuana in their lifetime. Well, Mr. Franklin, this is Alpha. Alpha, uh, how you doing? I'm okay. And uh, speaking of the movement in California, and speaking of just marijuana in and of itself, the defeat of that uh, ballot initiative in California was partial was basically due to the amount of money that was poured in against it, and I'll I'll continue to to, to yell and scream it. It's not really about the drug itself, whether to legalize it or not, because they know that is the the foothold. If you legalize marijuana, you can no longer disallow hemp. <laughs> and the you. truth about hemp. <laughs> has to do with oil companies. Yes. And if you can get hemp back into the, you know, hemp was our major crop in this country from, what was it, uh, 1776 to 1938? Absolutely. Just talk to to George Washington. He'll tell you. You can grow three crops a year, and you don't need pesticides. It grows in all kind of weather. Yes. And it, it'll just destroy the 25,000 oil-based products that are made. And it's with the big interest and the big lobby from oil that keeps marijuana from being legalized. You're absolutely right. Alpha, you're absolutely right. One of the, the main issues, this, and, and this is not so much an issue of, uh, even though uh, they have used such policies to, to control populations of people from the Chinese to the Mexicans and now to, to blacks, but it's an economic issue. It is truly an economic issue. Not just the oils, but there are a number of other companies that don't want to see hemp legally grown in this country. Talk about something that would get us out of this financial uh, state that we're in now as a country, let's bring hemp. 
back. We import all of our hemp products right now. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think I believe uh, companies such as DuPont had a role uh, with uh, uh, hemp uh, leaving our, our countryside. Um, there are... Um, yeah, I mean... Cotton, the, paper, rope. Right. The, the uh, lumber industry doesn't want it. Uh, cotton industry doesn't want it. Uh, and one of the key things you mentioned, Alpha, was that the average farmer could grow this and and get so much from it themselves they could they could the biofuels that they can generate from it to run their equipment absolutely uh, medicine yeah medicine the, the list is long and what's really interesting and the reason we know this is true because you can grow industrial hemp and there is no THC there is no you can't get high off of it you know so why not let it grow if it's not uh, if we're not talking economics here? If we're not talking the powers that be, the special interests that are keeping it out of out of our fields. So, I mean, there are many issues here surrounding this this you know what we're this topic tonight. But Alpha, you just hit a big one. Um, it is economics, in addition to um, um, just the overall war on drugs itself, in an effort to control populations of people. And, and Michelle really uh, digs into the history of drug prohibition in this country, uh, going back into the uh, early 1900s with the Harrison Act and uh, opium and, and Chinese and bringing it forward, marijuana and, and the Mexicans and, and uh, uh, Nixon's aide Alderman and some of the things Alderman said about uh, uh, quotes from Nixon at the height, at the beginning of the uh, war on drugs. So it's, it's very, very interesting, and uh, the people are going to be the ones to move this because our, our politicians, uh, they're just not the leaders that they need to be. Well, there's one question that I have for you, Neil, that, that has just been plaguing me uh, throughout um, uh, the years, and that is... <clears throat> Policing is supposed to exist to make society safer. And I'm not getting this about hunting down nonviolent marijuana users at the expense of the thousands of unsolved assaults, rapes, and murders, and warrants on domestic violence that don't get served. I, yes. You know, I know this thing about... Um, uh, that there is some, there's an economy um, in the communities of law enforcement people, especially the FBI, state attorneys, investigators, etc., around nonviolent marijuana uh, users, and it has to do with you don't put yourself at, in in harm's way when you're dealing with those people and making those kind of arrests. But how do local politicians and state politicians continue to uh, reward law enforcement policies around this issue? I'm, I'm, is it something that we're not doing out here? <laughs> oh, God. Um, well, we just... It begins with us, 
I mean, we just really have to educate ourselves uh, more than what we currently do. One of the, let me say this first, Janice, is that as it's been two years, a little over two years I've been speaking for LEAP, and as I travel the country, um, speaking to different groups and, and seeing the people who are involved in actually pushing this issue, I didn't see many of us. I didn't see many blacks in this fight. And I, I really believe it's because of a lack of good information surrounding this topic. And, you know, as you, as you talk about the crimes that go unsolved, back in the 1960s, the late 60s, we solved nine out of ten murders in this country. Today we only solve six out of ten. And it's the, the same percentages for rapes in this country. And you talked about domestic violence. We've gotten away. Policing has gotten away from its true intent. And its true intent is to, is, is to be out there to protect people from violent people, not to protect people from themselves because they choose to use a particular substance. Um, but policing has been used for something that it was not originally intended for. Uh, and now we, and from that also comes the, the prison industrial complex. There's another incentive. There's another special interest as to why um, it, it's going to be difficult making this turn. Um, the prison industrial complex has basically become a jobs program for rural America. And... When you have prison guards lobbying, lobbying against drug policy reform, lobbying against the release of nonviolent drug offenders, what does that tell you? And, well, and some of these unions have more money than you can imagine. Well, uh, Kevin, let me let me say this, and I caught. This piece, I caught this bit from when you first started, when you first came in. You said for the long, for the longest time, you were, you were of that line of thinking about how, how coming in and fighting the the crime and fighting the drugs, especially, to something to that effect. That and it was due due to your, to them, to the brainwashing. Mm-hmm. And isn't that isn't that like parallel to military? Isn't that what they do to the to the uh, soldiers in the military? They yeah. keep them uh, thinking as a collective, kind of like the Borg. Yeah. And uh, uh, Star Trek. If 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 you keep them, you know, uh, unable to express their own individual feelings or think on their own, you know, the, the type of thinking that, uh, you know, separates people from just following the herd. And if, you are, and if you follow the herd like that, you listen to that same voice of telling you that this is wrong or this is, and you become vulnerable to someone else's ideology. Absolutely. Because that's what we find in... That's where it comes out of the military. And Absolutely. when you come out of the military with that mindset, 
then aren't most of the military, aren't most of the prison guards ex-military, aren't most of the Blackwater mercenaries ex-military because of the collective thought? Yes. And when you get into the police force, it turns into a thing of you don't question authority because that's what you've learned, that's what you have been uh, indoctrinated to. Absolutely. And, and law enforcement and policing in recruiting, they highly, I mean, they really heavily recruit uh, prior uh, military because they had, they already had that, that, that thinking, that thinking process that's already ingrained in them. Now all you have to do is give them a, a, a new book to study. Right. It's uh, indoctrination. It's the right. same thing that they've accused this president of trying to indoctrinate their children. And it's the right. same kind of indoctrination that you get in, in kind of this factory-like atmosphere that is the military. Absolutely. Don't think, your own, don't think on your own. Don't challenge authority. Don't question. Charge up that hill despite the uh, oncoming fire that, that w will surely kill you. You, you know, ask for the bigger collective. Another thing that makes it even more difficult than the average prof profession to think different, to, to think differently and to act on your own is that if you choose to do so, you really do feel as though you are on your own because over the years, law enforcement has developed uh, a culture of us and them. Right. And if you're not one of us, you're then with. you're one of them. But you can't be one of them because them, they don't like you. In many of our cities, you're not liked by the, the community. You're, you're not embraced by the community because of the, the style of policing that takes place in, in our communities. So if you choose to walk to the beat of a different drum, you will find yourself out there with no backup. You will find yourself out there in the middle of a struggle with someone and no one comes to your aid, and you know this. So therefore, you are not going to step out on your own. You are not going to think independently. You're going to march to the beat of their drum. And to me, that is, that is what's so damaging to not just us as a society, but especially to our community, the African-American community, because right. we have a, we've been indoctrinated, and we've been scarred for the, over the last 450 years, per se. Yeah. And if, when if you, we, you get into that thinking, this is what you get, and this is, this is, what, our, this is what our temperature is because of how and who set that thermostat. Right. If, if we ever want to uh, connect law enforcement and community again, and I'm not talking about rural America. It's a completely different scene. I'm, for the most part, talking about our, our major metropolitan areas. If we ever want to connect law enforcement and community, we do have to begin with a drastic change to our drug policies. We do have to end this prohibition period. Because until we do, 
we'll never get there. It's it's the foundation. Even though uh, uh, cops profile for many things, they use racial profiling for many things, 85% of racial profiling deals with our war on drugs. 85% of the time they stop a brother or a sister in a car or walk along the street to search them. It's about drugs. That's where we need to begin. Or the profiling of having the drugs. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the random stop turns into probable cause for any and everything. Correct. More times than not, when you're being stopped for something, what's in the back of that police officer's mind, because I know it was in the back of my mind, when I stopped you, yeah, you may have committed a minor violation or something, but that's not what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about looking for drugs. Well, one of the things that I think that kind of history, that kind of experience with most people in the African-American community, the kind of racial profiling that we know occurs, um, it, it sets up, Neil, a barrier between people in the community uh, who could or who would or who might mobilize uh, to stop this insanity called the war on drugs. But, you know, you, you're looking at um, rogue cops. Um, you're looking at thug cops. I mean, I witnessed six cops taking down a 16-year-old here in Boston. I didn't witness it personally. I witnessed it on the TV. But it doesn't matter because someone was smart enough to videotape it on a telephone. And I watched what those men did to that kid. And he simply uh, was in a place where people didn't understand why he was there and what he was doing, so the Boston police were called. And they literally whipped this poor kid. I mean, he was standing when they, six thugs, police thugs. And, Neil, that's the thing that's got to stop. In addition to if you want a community to support the right thing that's coming from law enforcement or whatever, people have to trust that they're not supporting that whole system of how black children are being brutalized on the street, they're being killed, um, uh, they're being um, manipulated into prison. So how do we, how do we, bring, how do we bring some sanity uh, to our own advocacy and how how do we come together as two different kinds of of, of communities? Well, you're, I mean, you're 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 an ex major in the state police. I know you. I know that. Thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. 
all the shit that's fucking us up. Misogynoir, racism, xenophobia, transphobia, homophobia, all the crazy phobias and isms that need to fucking go. You know why it's the 21st century? And we too old to be dealing with this bullshit. Thank you for being with us tonight on Our Common Ground. Say their name. 